Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. There are many things that we take for granted in the modern United States. The President's Cabinet is one of them. Although the Cabinet is a prominent fixture of the federal government, and a powerful and essential one at that, it has no foundation in the Constitution. Although the framers discussed the idea of a Cabinet at the Constitutional Convention, they ultimately rejected it and left it on the cutting room floor. Yet, despite the fact that the cabinet has no constitutional origin, it does have a historical one. On today's episode, Dr. Lindsay Travinsky joins me to explore the cabinet's emergence during George Washington's presidency and answer your questions about this formative moment in American history. Travinsky is a historian at the White House Historical Association and the author of the new book, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. Now, before we get started, I'd like to encourage everyone to check out Mount Vernon's live stream schedule. We're putting on live events every weekday at noon via Mount Vernon's Facebook page and YouTube channel, with hosts like Dr. Doug Bradburn leading tours of the mansion and answering your questions. And we'll have the occasional evening event with some of your favorite authors. You can find more information by going to www.mountvernon.org digital. And now, let's create the cabinet with Lindsay Travinsky. Lindsay Dravinsky, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me back. I'm uh, I'm sorry that it's not in better circumstances. We are recording uh, in March 2020, or right at the end of March 2020, when we are all practicing social distancing and uh, the library at, at Mount Vernon is not currently open, uh, as listeners know, and neither is Mount Vernon itself, but we're still putting out great content, at least I think so, so we're here to serve you, the listeners, um, and grateful that you took the time to speak to us today about your new book. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's not um, it's not the best time to be putting out a book, but I can't really complain because, um, you know, a silver lining is a lot of people are looking for things to do. So hopefully the cabinet will be a, a good way to divert your attention. Mm-hmm. So tell us, what's the title of your book? The title is The Cabinet, George Washington, and the Creation of an American Institution. And it's coming out next week, is that right, first week of April? Yes, April 7th, 2020 is the official release date. Well, before we get started really talking about the book, I mentioned here at the top that Mount Vernon and the Washington Library are closed until further notice, and uh, I would imagine the situation is similar at the White House Historical Association. Yeah, that's right. We are um, close to the public. Unfortunately, we had to cancel the Easter egg roll, which is one of our big April events. But I would be remiss if I didn't say that you can actually buy the Easter eggs online. Um, But we are, as you guys are doing as well, we are working to push out a lot of great online content for teachers and people at home with their kids and families. And of course, adults too. Uh, We like to make learning available for all ages. So lots of good online content, some live events coming up. Stay tuned, including my book launch on April 7th, which will be live streamed on Facebook. So, you know, we're all kind of just trying to do the best we can and um, stay safe and uh, make the best of it. I did not realize that the White House Historical Association put on the Easter egg roll. Yes, we. Um, that is a, a relatively recent role we have taken over. The Easter egg role, of course, has been around for quite some time. But uh, recently, that's been one of our partnerships. And it's a great way for us to tell the history of the Easter egg role and how it's evolved. But uh, this year, it was you know deemed a bad idea to have 30,000 kids running around. 
Yeah, that would not be uh, a very easy task to put six feet between no. a bunch of young people. <laughs> no, it would have made social distancing really hard. So it was the right call, even if it's disappointing. Yeah, it is. Well, hopefully we'll be back up and running at full steam next April. That is certainly the hope. <laughs> All right, so we're here to talk about your book. As you said, it launches on uh, April 7th. And this book is a product uh the labor of love, I know for you, but you've been working on it for quite some time. You even rewrote it twice, if I remember. Three correctly. times. Three times. Yeah, I don't. I don't advise. <laughs> I don't advise doing it this way. So it, it came from my dissertation, which mm-hmm. um, I was in grad school for about five years. So there was that, and then um, I rewrote it several times after that. Did some some structural reorganization and decided I hated the new format, and so then rewrote it again, and then was. I really wanted the story to read well. I wanted it to be enjoyable for people and to be accessible. And so was pretty fanatical about trying to get the language right. So what was the origins of this project? I got So I got really lucky because I was talking to my advisor. I knew that I wanted to work on something having to do with politics in the early republic. Um, and it always struck me that individuals that came into government in the 1790s had such an incredible ability to affect policy and affect the way the government developed, if only because there were so few people actually in office. And so I knew I wanted to have something to do with that, and something having to do with Washington's administration. And so I began to look for, he encouraged me to look for scholarship and for books about the cabinet. And I couldn't find anything. And so I went back and I said, you know, I'm not really, I'm not seeing anything. Can you, can you tell me where to look? I'm not trying to avoid the work. I just don't know. I'm just not, you know, I can't come up with anything. He said, well, why don't you go look in these places? And why don't you go look in these places? And I did. And just, I came back and I said, you know, I just really don't think there's anything there. And he said, well, do you want to write that story? And um, I should be very clear that there's a lot of work on Hamilton and Jefferson and Washington and their relationships with each other. But I wanted to understand the institution and where that was coming from and how it emerged, and how it evolved. And so that was the story. That was my question that I was really trying to answer. What is the origin of the word cabinet? I mean, where do we, we take it for granted these days, but surely there is a historical origin that you were grappling with as you were telling this story. Yeah, absolutely. So the the British had, it's a very, like many things in our, in American culture and American politics, the British had the cabinet. And that came actually from uh, the Privy Council initially. So the king had a Privy Council that he would meet with, and uh, they met in a large, ornate room. And eventually, as the Privy Council got larger and expanded, it became an inefficient advisory body because he was just too big and there were too many factions and people tended to argue way too much. So the king would take his favorite advisors into a small chamber off the off to the side, which was referred to as the king's cabinet. And um, that was just the name of the room. And so... This council, this mini council, became known as the Cabinet Council, and then council eventually was dropped, and it just became known as the Cabinet. And so when President Washington started to meet with the department secretaries personally and in a group, that then became known as Washington's Cabinet. And that was very much in the political lexicon by about 1792, 1793. People were regularly referring to this group as the Cabinet. So are there examples that we can point to in the colonies at the time or are there colonial examples sort of, you know, in the Virginia's Privy Council or uh, in Massachusetts or South Carolina or elsewhere that uh, sort of seem like a cabinet-like body? 
So the closest thing would be the um, the councils of state in the various, I mean, they were called different things, but like Virginia, for example, had a council of state and some other states had governor's councils. And usually they were appointed by the legislature. They were appointed to limit uh, the governor's control. And so they were usually uh, served as a check on his authority and they were beholden to the legislature for their pay. They were beholden to the legislature for their appointment. And so they really were at the whims of whatever the legislator felt like doing. And so that's the closest when we think of some sort of council, but they really served a different purpose because they were there to limit executive power as opposed to facilitate it. Now, as listeners might remember from our earlier podcast, oh, about six months or so ago, we learned uh, in the course of our discussion then that the cabinet has no constitutional origins. It's, it's The constitution is silent on the cabinet. And so one of the things uh, you were after was trying to reconstruct the origins of the cabinet in the American political tradition, as you just suggested, you know, part of it does descend from uh, the British tradition. But a lot of what you discuss in your book focuses on Washington and his command relationships during the Revolutionary War. So can you talk a little bit about how you see the origins of the cabinet in the ways in which Washington is interacting with his senior officers, seeking their advice, uh, and delegating responsibilities during uh, the conflict with Britain. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, um, when Washington came into the presidency, there wasn't any sort of established body, and he really had to figure out how he could best interact with the department secretaries to get advice, um, to get support, and he dismissed a similar council like the councils of war in Virginia because they had all had experiences with that sort of council and really didn't want to limit executive power. And so Washington really turned to his own leadership experience, which was primarily in a military context. And he had regularly convened councils of war during the revolution to ask his officers for advice to try and build unity among them when they were trying to establish a certain policy, uh, to provide political cover for a controversial decision. And so he had found the councils to be incredibly helpful. It was a great way to hear all of the different opinions, to allow people to debate their different uh, positions. It's kind of a way to stress test the different ideas that he was coming across. And so that had been really helpful for him. And he used a couple of key strategies when managing these very uh, tumultuous and sometimes difficult personalities. Um, one of my favorite stories is Charles Lee of sort of Hamilton musical fame uh, used to come to councils of war with his pack of hounds. And um, as anyone who knows, who has a hound knows, they can be incredibly loud and sort of bay at will. And so he was a very disruptive presence. And so the councils of war could be pretty raucous. And so um, one way that Washington managed these personalities was by asking for written opinions afterwards if there was disagreement. He would often send out questions ahead of time so that the officers could think about what they wanted to say, to think about what sort of advice they wanted to provide. And then he would use those questions as a, uh, as a guidebook or as an agenda for their meeting to try and keep things somewhat under control. Um, and Washington was also very careful to try and build camaraderie among the officers. He would frequently hold social events, whether it be dinners or balls, to build an esprit de corps among them, recognizing that 
regardless of their differences of opinion, they were all fighting towards a common cause. And so it was really important that they did have those social bonds. So all of that background Washington brought into the presidency, Mm -hmm. and he utilized many of the same ideas, many of the same strategies to deal with his sometimes equally difficult secretaries and uh, equally conflicting opinions. Um, So he would often send questions to Hamilton, Jefferson, Knox, and Randolph to ask them to consider some issues before a meeting. He would then use those questions to guide their discussion over the course of several days. And if they disagreed and it was something that he felt like he needed to consider um, more slowly or on his own time, he would ask for written opinions and then make Mm -hmm. a decision later. And um, unlike with the officers, uh, Washington did have social events with the secretaries, but as anyone knows about how uh, Hamilton and Jefferson's relationship ended up, it didn't quite have the same effect. They weren't exactly on the best of terms. <laughs> no, they hated each the, other. At the end of their <laughs> tenure in the Washington administration. They didn't start off that way. I mean, they, they sort of always had a difference of opinion about what the future of the country should look like. Mm-hmm. Hamilton was much more pro-trade and believed in industry and the importance of urban centers, whereas Jefferson was much more in favor of a human farmer class of citizens. But they didn't hate each other initially. They just kind of had these different visions. But that quickly spiraled into um, a much deeper and more bitter conflict. I mean, that's that's putting it lightly. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it spawned the initial political parties, so it, it clearly had an effect. One of the things that I've been wondering uh, for a while now, in thinking about how Washington is managing the, the presence of various competing individuals, managing their personalities, but also seeking their opinions and advice, both during the war and during his presidency, to what extent is this a learned behavior? Is this something he learns from Edward Braddock during the French and Indian War? Well, Washington definitely attended councils of war. He served as one of Braddock's volunteer aides-de-camp in his official military family. So he certainly was there, and he certainly saw the practice of convening a council, and that was something that the American generals inherited from their British cousins. Um, But he didn't necessarily follow all of those practices. So one of the things that Washington, he never wrote this down, but I think certainly the evidence suggests he learned this, was the importance of having local knowledge about what the terrain and available options would be for fighting the war. So, um, you know, Braddock famously sort of disregarded the local knowledge about the best way to go through a forest to go fight a war, and that had deadly consequences Mm -hmm. when he was attacked by French and Native forces. So Washington was very quick to bring in local farmers Um, local business owners to consult with officers who might have been born and raised in a certain area to see if they could provide any inside information about, um, you know, terrain or paths. And this most famously comes to fruition in between the battles of Trenton and Princeton when Washington and the American forces are able to escape outside the British line and marched Princeton without being detected. And that path wasn't on any map. And it was only because a local farmer had come to a council of war and shared this knowledge that Washington was able to utilize it. Is that something that he continues to do during the presidency? Is he bringing in outside people to consult with? Um, He's not as much bringing them to him like he did in the councils of war, but they are deploying a network of local knowledge. So 
Hamilton was especially well equipped to um, connect with local opinions. He used his various um, uh, the the customs collectors and all of the different ports, and he would frequently ask them for updates and advice about our you know how are local people responding to the mm-hmm. type of taxes that we're putting on different goods. Are they too heavy to bear? Are people tolerating them okay? And he would often ask friends that were in those ports as well, you know, as a businessman, how do you feel about this? And so they all had their own networks. Jefferson certainly had his, especially in Virginia. Washington had a national network. And they really called on them to share advice and guidance and opinions as the government was rolling out a new policy. So he was relying on, uh, you say, local experts, but also national experts and you might say data-driven analysis in some ways. Yes, absolutely. And he was he was very careful um, really throughout his sort of adult leadership experience. I kind of draw a line between the seven years war leadership experience and the stuff that comes after because he seems so much more level-headed. Um, well, I mean, when you start a global war and then maybe think, sit down and think about that for a while, about what you did. <laughs> yes, although, to be fair, if France and Great Britain had been on good terms, Washington would not have been able to instigate a global war. So it wasn't entirely his fault, just just a little bit. Well, that's true. <laughs> but yes, um, he was he was a, um, a problem causer early on, for sure. Um, but... So he he definitely, he wanted data. He always wanted data. And so, for example, during the, um, the ratification process after the Constitutional Convention, he subscribed to tons of newspapers mm-hmm. and he conducted an extensive letter writing campaign in which he was asking all acquaintances across the country to send him updates about how people locally um, were responding to the Constitution, how were ratification debates going in their local state. And if letters didn't come fast enough, he would send his enslaved manservant, William Lee, down to Alexandria to pick up the letters and bring them back. Mm-hmm. Um, the cost of admission to Mount Vernon at that time was basically you had to provide him an update with how things are going. So he basically accosted anyone who yeah. came across his threshold for information. Um, so and he continued that into his presidency. He was always asking people for updates. So knowledge becomes a kind of currency in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in a, you know in an age when we don't have polling and we don't have Google and we don't have Twitter, he was relying on the connections he had and the written correspondence that he had um, access to to provide that sort of information. So when is he when he's accumulating this information? When he is assessing the lay of the land? When he's taking advice from his ministers, both or his officers during the war, and you know his cabinet members later during his presidency? Is he seeking some kind of consensus to move forward as a unified group, or is he seeking enough information that he, as the general leader, as the president, can make what he thinks is the best informed decision? Well, he certainly um, liked consensus when it was available. Uh, He preferred, especially if it was a controversial decision like uh, a veto or a retreat, he certainly preferred unanimity among his various officers. Um, but he wasn't afraid to make a decision without it and definitely felt like the final decision um, came to him and was his to make. And that was one of, I think, his greatest strengths was surrounding himself with people who had the knowledge and expertise to provide support that he didn't necessarily have or um, facts he didn't necessarily know about. So, for example, uh, Jefferson had served as a minister abroad for many years. He was fluent in French. 
uh, Washington had only left the country once when he was a teenager to go to Barbados. So he didn't have the same sort of diplomatic experience, and he wasn't fluent in French, which was the language of diplomacy. So he was careful to provide himself with an advisor who had the sort of um, analysis that he didn't have. And, and, and he sought out that expertise and listened to it. He didn't always go with Jefferson's opinion, but he certainly wanted to be a part of his decision-making process. So can you give us a concrete example of uh, Washington during his presidency taking advice from his various cabinet ministers and then making a decision that might not have been, oh, shall we say, to the liking of many or at least some of those ministers in that cabinet? Oh, there are so many to choose from um, because they so rarely actually ended up agreeing with each other. So, um, all right, one of my favorites is actually the first use of a presidential veto. Hmm. And um, this happened after Congress implemented the first census. And without getting into the numbers, because it's very convoluted, essentially they decided to divide the entire nation's population by 30,000, which ended up having some very weird fractions in certain states, as opposed to dividing each state's population by 30,000, which tended to give you a little bit better numbers. And that way of doing the math tended to privilege northern states as opposed to southern states. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, Washington was initially inclined, inclined to veto that legislation, but he felt like that might be viewed as favoritism for the South, especially mm -hmm. because Virginia, some of the Virginia congressmen were really the ones pushing for it. So he consulted with his department secretaries, and Hamilton and Knox felt that the Constitution provided enough leeway that Washington could go ahead and as long as the number was fair, Washington could go ahead and accept the bill and it would be fine. So he didn't need to use a veto. Randolph and Jefferson felt like the Constitution was actually pretty explicit about how the census was supposed to be counted. And so because Congress did not follow the letter of the law, it should be vetoed. So what Washington decided to do is he was really torn between these two things. He felt very strongly that Jefferson and Randolph were right, but again, he was really worried about showing favoritism. And so in sort of a peculiar move, he asks Jefferson and Randolph to go talk to Madison, another fellow Virginian. And if Madison agreed with all of them, then he instructed them to draw up basically a, an article of veto that he could send to Congress. And surprise, surprise, Madison agrees with Jefferson and thinks that there should be a veto. And so he does actually implement the veto. And in this instance, I don't think that Knox and Hamilton were all that furious, but it was a pretty clear example of they had written out the reasons they disagreed and mm -hmm. Washington had to take a side. And this is before it's really well known that Jefferson and Madison are, I, I maybe not scheming, well, I guess scheming would be the right, would be the right phrase. Um, they're yeah, they're definitely starting to scheme at this point. So this is right around the time that the House is starting to look into some of Hamilton's financial legislation uh, just to make sure that the accounting is correct. Mm -hmm. And they're using these sort of secret documents that Jefferson had drawn up that had like all these questions that he wanted them to ask Hamilton about mm -hmm. in the House um, committee investigation. Um, and everyone kind of knew that Jefferson was feeding them this secret information, so it wasn't a very good secret. Um, <laughs> but they hadn't had, like, the official break over French versus Great Britain mm -hmm. 
um, diplomatic policy that would come a year later. So tell us about the process of writing this book. I mean, we've established that you rewrote it three times from your dissertation, but looking at the nuts and the bolts of the things, you know, what kind of sources are you using? And, and, and I do want to talk about how you decided to tell the story, but you know, at its base level, what, what is the foundation for the story you are telling? So I kind of started trying to figure out what were some of the different influences. Um, I read a lot of biographies. That was sort of my starting point, to try and get a sense of the personalities involved, to get a sense of what other people were saying about my main characters, and to get a sense of the sort of um, scope of events. So I had a good sense of what the narrative arc was going to be before I really dug into a lot of the archival material. And then I started looking into the British cabinet, and I started looking into the councils of state, and I started looking into the military records from the councils of war because I wanted to have a sense of what those things were first before I kind of came up with my um, image in my mind of what the cabinet meetings looked like so that I could see where those different origins were potentially influencing actions or um, serving as sort of anti-origins. I, I like to think of the British cabinet and the councils of state as anti-origins in that Washington and the secretaries were trying to avoid some of the things that they saw as flaws mm-hmm. in those two different types of advisory bodies. And then when I was actually digging into the cabinet, I mean, I'm very fortunate that all of Hamilton's letters, Jefferson's letters, and Washington's letters are pretty much digitized and available online at founders.archive.gov. And, of course, that that comes from the incredible editing projects, the presidential papers editing projects. So this project would have taken probably three times as long without without that work and that incredibly valuable scholarship. So, um, you know, some historians are dealing with, like, ten papers when they're looking or ten letters when they're looking at a book. I was dealing with, like, 10,000, which is a problem of riches to have and one I, I can't really complain about. Um, But I spent a lot of time in their letters trying to figure out when cabinet meetings were taking place, where they were taking place, what people were saying, how they felt about a certain issue. And I created a giant spreadsheet of every cabinet meeting that I could find just so I could keep track of where, you know, all of the sort of nitty gritty quantitative details um, so that I would have those to back up my argument. How many cabinet meetings did you find in the end? So um, I, I was able to find about 96 in Washington's administration. Mm-hmm. He didn't attend all of them. Sometimes he would instruct the cabinet to meet without him and report back on a particular issue. Um, but I found about 96. Now, there could have been more. I'm, uh, you know, there weren't official cabinet min- minutes taken or anything like that. So we find them, um, or I found them, when Washington mentions that the gentlemen of his family or the secretaries were coming over for a meeting or a family dinner. Um, We find them when Jefferson took notes about what happened or Hamilton took notes about what he wanted to say. Um, But it's very possible that there were meetings that took place that they just didn't write about. And so, unfortunately, those we probably won't ever know about. Those are lost. Those are lost. When you were thinking about rewriting the dissertation and transforming it into a book, you know, typically dissertations are written for your committee for the five people who judge your fate at the end of your, your graduate tenure and say, <laughs> it's very dramatic. okay, you can go out into the world and, and be in the club. But I would imagine you, and not imagine, I know this is true, you had a certain audience in mind or a very different audience in mind when you wanted to write the book. Um, can you tell us about the process 
of transforming one thing into another, into this final product? Well, it's a very messy one. Um, So I wrote the dissertation fairly thematically. So I had a chapter on the British cabinet and how that sort of contributed to the formation of the American version. I had a chapter on councils of war. I had a chapter on the state councils of state. Um, I had a, a couple of other chapters that looked at different aspects. And I didn't have a lot of the more narrative elements or the background story that one usually finds in a book that is intended for a somewhat public audience because, as you said, my, the people on my committee, they already knew that information. They didn't need to know you know, Hamilton's backstory or Hamilton's relationship with Jefferson. That was information that was already available to them. But I wanted the book to tell a story. I wanted it to be available to people who didn't have a PhD in American history. I wanted people to learn something and to enjoy reading it. And from my perspective, I didn't want to spend eight years working on something to have 10 people read it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that doesn't mean that there isn't value in incredibly technical literature. Of course that there is. And it's just that that wasn't my goal. Um, And so I had to then go... I basically took my dissertation and I pulled it apart sentence by sentence, figuring out eventually how to tell the story in a chronological way. Mm-hmm. And so it starts with the Revolutionary War and Washington's experience in the Revolutionary War. But then it also looks at the secretary's experiences in the war and how that shaped their thinking about government and executive power. And then I moved to the 1780s and the Constitutional Convention because that's a very important part of demonstrating what the delegates and the Constitution expected and provided to Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, then I looked at the early years of the presidency and the emergence of the cabinet. And so what I initially fought against and eventually had to had to give in is, as it is, the cabinet doesn't actually show up until just over halfway through the book, mm-hmm. which is kind of weird because the title is the cabinet. Um, but I needed to tell that backstory mm-hmm. so that people could see where it was coming from. And I allude to certain, you know, this becomes important later so that people know why I'm sharing it. Um, but I fought against that initially and didn't want to do strictly chronological and it just didn't make any sense. So, um, chronology won and I think it's much better for it, putting it that way. The story does hopefully, hopefully everyone will agree it actually reads like a story, um, and they'll be able to take something from it in that way. Well, it would be a little confusing or maybe not as satisfying if you started Chapter 1, the first cabinet meeting. <laughs> it certainly wouldn't have the buildup of drama. Um, I was trying to take it thematical, like, you know, here's this aspect and here's how it compares to the cabinet and here's this aspect. Mm-hmm. And it just it was a catastrophe and it was a mess, hence the writing it three times. But um, hopefully I won't have to do that with the next book. Did you find it particularly challenging to tell these stories with people who are so well-known? I mean, yes, Knox isn't as probably as well-known as maybe Hamilton or other, other people, but um, these these are all central characters in, you know, a, a three-stage drama. Yeah. Um, it certainly was hard. I, I think sometimes I'm sure with, um, you know, with people like Hamilton and Jefferson that I was um, – without really knowing it, you know, parroting some things that I had mm-hmm. read before. Of course, you know, tried really hard to describe it in my own way. But as I mentioned, I had read many, many bios of them to make sure I sort of understood what other people were saying. I think where I felt like I was able to say something different is that most people don't really look at their relationship within the cabinet mm-hmm. and within those meeting spaces. They might talk about a particular debate um, or a particularly colorful phrase that Jefferson wrote down in the context of a discussion. But 
understanding how they related to one another, locked in this room, sometimes hours a day, sometimes five days a week, in the middle of the summer when it's really, really stinking hot in Philadelphia. Um, I felt like that provided me with a different sense of their relationship, and that was what I felt like I was able to contribute that was new. Thinking about our own time a little bit, you know, we are recording this episode amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. There was a uh, a yellow fever outbreak in Philadelphia in 1793. And so was there a coordinated strategy by Washington and his cabinet to deal with that crisis or what happened? Um, You know, not really. It's really, it's fascinating to compare the two because while Washington had a very robust sense of executive power, that didn't really extend to public health. Mm -hmm. That was still very much considered a state or local issue. Um, because they didn't understand how modern medicine worked. And so they didn't understand that diseases could spread internationally. Um, There was, however, a very colorful and um, intense partisan warfare over uh, where this disease came from Mm -hmm. and what was the best treatment for it. So, um, and neither were totally wrong. And well, the treatment, some of them were terrible, but and the causes, neither of them were totally wrong. Some thought that, um, so for example, the Federalists, who were you know pretty much led by Hamilton, they tended to think that immigrants coming in from places like Haiti and France were bringing this disease. And so they would quarantine ships to make sure that they were not um, bringing in any sort of um, infected goods to the city. And Republicans who didn't trust cities, they thought they were dirty and... Um, infested with disease and sin, um, thought that it was because uh, cities were unhealthful. They were unhealthful and they had, um, you know, they called them miasmas, which is what they sort of thought was like bad air. Mm -hmm. And in reality, yellow fever is usually spread by mosquitoes. Um, They can be transferred in from places like New Orleans or Haiti, but they also can be bred in standing water. And so they were both right and they were both wrong. Um, the Republicans tended to favor a, a heavy treatment of bloodletting, which was advocated by Rush, which doesn't really cure anything other than make you die faster. And um, the Federalists didn't really have a great solution otherwise, other than to like try and stay super hydrated and cool, which actually may have been fairly effective. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because it wasn't a national versus state conflict, but it definitely was a partisan one. Mm-hmm. Well, we do have some questions from uh, Twitter and Instagram. I don't know if you would mind answering a few of those from uh, from the community. Oh, fantastic. That sounds great. So uh, Tyler from Instagram wants to know, do any transcripts of Washington's cabinet meetings exist? Tyler, that's a great question. There weren't um, official meeting notes taken, um, so there wasn't someone designated to write down everything. Um, some We do have a pretty good record of what was said in some of the meetings, depending on who was present. So um, Jefferson and Hamilton tended to be the most copious note takers. And um, Jefferson really liked to document everything that Hamilton said and then everything that he wrote or said in um, response because he Mm. was trying to keep this document of, um, see this outrageous thing Hamilton said and here was my response. Um, But once Jefferson retired at the end of 1793, we have less meeting notes. We still have some, but less. Um, and I wish, I wish I could be a fly on the wall in some of those meetings to know how it would have gone down. Wouldn't we all? <laughs> yes. Or tapes, recordings would be lovely too. Yeah. If only, uh, 
Nixon had been in the office before Washington, we would have had, well, no, there were tapes since when? Re- Roosevelt, right? Yeah, Roosevelt, Roosevelt was the, I think Roosevelt was the first that I knew of. He had a tape uh, machine in, installed in the base of a lamp that was mo- motion detected and would uh, turn on. Oh, that's like, even in the 30s, that's like Mission Impossible. Yeah, it's stuff, pretty right? sneaky stuff. Elaine from Twitter would like to know, well, she says there are, were official reasons why the Capitol was moved from Pennsylvania to its current seat in Washington, D.C., but how much of that decision was due to Pennsylvania being a Quaker state? Uh, and the implication being here that uh, Quakers being a prominent part of Pennsylvania, Quakers were anti-slavery, and did that have any implications for moving the capital from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C.? Great question. Um, so I think that certainly was one factor. Um, that may have been one fa- one reason that Southerners tended to be uncomfortable with the capital in a northern city because there were um, more vocal protests against slavery in those places. Um, so I think the capital moving from Philadelphia to D.C. also one reason we can point to that is that Pennsylvanians themselves were very conflicted about where it should be. Um, some advocated for Philadelphia, but some advocated for a more Western location. And so that really undermined their ability to secure that location. And ultimately, once the compromise was made, then um, between, well, if you if you believe what Jefferson wrote about this meeting, once the compromise was made between Madison and Hamilton, then it was really up to Washington, and he wanted it on the banks of the Potomac. Very convenient for going home. Indeed. If he had served and lived longer. Indeed, indeed. Um, I mean, it also, there were a couple of good reasons for it being on the banks of the Potomac. The uh, Port of Alexandria and the Port of Georgetown were already well established. So mm-hmm. if you're building a city, it's good to have a place where you can send stuff or buy stuff. Um, but anyone who's spent a summer in D.C. knows that there are more, um, there are more enjoy- enjoyable climates, for sure. That's about the understatement of the millennium. <laughs> um, yeah. Susie, also from Twitter, uh, says, looking forward to the reading of the book. Thanks. Is there mention of Samuel Osgood, Postmaster General, as part of Washington's cabinet? I know that in the 1970s, the post was removed as a cabinet position, but curious about during Washington's time. No, he was never. So he was certainly in the position, but he was never included in the cabinet. Um, and I'm not totally sure why. There was never a reason that Washington wrote down. I think it just wasn't considered... Um, in the same realm as some of the other positions. And so he didn't seek out his advice in the same way. I see. Well, Poor one, Mr. Osgood. Yeah. Uh, he just didn't get... <laughs> he didn't make the cut. Didn't make the cut. <laughs> didn't get to go first-class mail. Um, John from Instagram wants to ask a question about someone who definitely was in the cabinet. What exactly happened when Edmund Randolph took the money from the French representative and then Edmund Randolph resigned? Oh, he did not take money. Okay, so this is one of my favorite stories because poor Edmund Randolph gets such a a short shift about um, everything. Um, So Jefferson famously wrote in a letter that uh, cabinet deliberations usually were decided by two and a half to one and a half votes, alluding to the fact that Randolph would often go back and forth and had trouble making up his mind. And that really colored everyone's interpretation of Randolph. Um, He's like the Anthony Kennedy of the yeah, cabinet. Yeah, I mean, he he actually really viewed himself as a nonpartisan figure. He was trying to remain fairly neutral and unbiased. And um, unlike Washington, who was sort of able to present that vision of himself in a way that was at least slightly believable, Randolph just ended up seeming wishy-washy. So I kind of feel bad for him. 
Um, so the only evidence that we ever had that he um, offered basically to sell state secrets to the French came from this one dispatch that the French minister wrote to um, his home government back in France. And it was captured by the Briti- by a British ship and was given to the British minister who then turned it over to um, Oliver Wolcott Jr. and Timothy Pickering. Um, so that sounds like, okay, fairly reasonable, right? But... Um, Wolcott and Pickering couldn't stand Randolph because he was less Federalist and was more um, neutral and maybe even Republican-leaning. And they also really resented the influence he had in the cabinet. He was, at that point, Washington's favorite advisor. He was in on -on one-on-one conversations and privy to information that they were not. And so I suspect that the British minister gave the letter to them knowing that they would use it for political reasons. Now, they translated it. It was in French. They translated it from French to English. Um, I My French is not fantastic, but people whose French is much better have said that the translation was a very poor one. Mm. And, of course, Washington did not speak French, so he was relying entirely on their translation. And from my understanding, reading the documents, it basically sounds like Randolph was saying in in the context of the Whiskey Rebellion, so when rebels were when rebels were um, uh, protesting against the excise tax out in western Pennsylvania and things were fairly chaotic, Randolph confided in the French minister basically saying that the French minister could really sway the outcome of the events with like a fairly small amount of money. And what he was saying is that if he if they invested in the rebels, then <laughs> that would really change the course of events. But of course... Pickering and Wolcott read that as, if you give me a bribe, Mm -hmm. I will change the course of events. So I don't think that Randolph actually did anything wrong um, other than maybe being a little naive and too trusting. And then the way the whole confrontation went down, actually, I'm going to say no spoilers, but the way the confrontation went down, he just didn't handle it very well. And he acted rashly and Washington acted rashly. And it could have been much more sensible. And you will have to read Chapter 8 to find out what happens. That's. I was going to ask a question about how he responded, but I guess... <laughs> Rashly is the I'll answer. I had to read the book to yes. find out. Uh, the last question we have from our uh, from social media is from the Twitter handle Veiled Observer. Ooh, mysterious. And this person asked three questions, two okay. of which you have already answered in the course of our conversation. So I will ask the final one, which is, if any... Name a surprising thing you learned about Washington or his administration as you researched and wrote your book. Okay, I'm going to do two. Um, The first, I think I mentioned the last time we discussed, but it's a very important fact, and so I want to reiterate it, which is that the first cabinet meeting did not take place until November 26th, 1791. And that was in response to? Um, So basically Jefferson had got some bad news from the British minister about the state of their current negotiations over a treaty, and so they had sort of a annual check-in to figure out how they wanted to handle diplomacy going forward Mm -hmm. with France, Great Britain, Spain, et cetera. I see. So nothing really came out of that meeting per se, but um, the fact that it took place two and a half years into Washington's administration is really important to note because it demonstrates the organic evolution of the administration, of the government, of the cabinet, and it really shows how many other options Washington tried before he eventually settled on the cabinet. So that is fact one. Fact two is that Washington, from what I can tell, from every evidence, every bit of evidence that is remaining, he refused to use the word cabinet until after he retired. 
He does not have it in his writings. He refers to the secretaries either as the department secretaries or the gentlemen of my family. Um, He says a meeting or discussion, but he obviously was familiar with the word and he knew what the word was being referred to because the second he retired, he starts referring to it as Adam's cabinet. And why is that so? Is he worried about the implications that it seems too British? That is my best guess. He doesn't say why. Um, unfortunately, with Washington, he often says what he did, but not why he did it. Um, but that is my best guess because, um, and I try and be very clear about this in my writing and in my speaking, that he was very attentive to how he appeared in all things. And he was very careful of his reputation and his image. And he tried to cultivate himself as a virtuous Republican. This is little r Republican. And we have all of these instances of him carefully managing different aspects of his personality and his reputation and um, trying to demonstrate how different he is than the British king. So my expectation is that that continued once he actually had a cabinet and once he was president. But we don't know for sure if that was the exact reason. Would people have complained if he used the word cabinet? I don't think so because most of these letters are – to family members, there to colleagues, there to friends. The only thing I can think of is that he didn't want to ever, there's also no record of him talking about those meetings. He had sort of a strict veil of secrecy mm-hmm. that his secretaries didn't really abide by. Um, but he personally, there's no record of him talking about these conversations or interactions. Um, and so I think it was his way of trying to distance himself. He obviously knew as well that his letters were going to be kept for posterity um, after his retirement, before he passed away. Um, as you well know, because we're here at Mount Vernon, um, he invited people here to look at the letters to write, start writing history. Um, so he always had an eye on what historical observers mm. would view his reputation. Well, speaking of uh, historical observers, what lessons should we take away from Washington and his cabinet for our own time? It's a great question. Um, So Washington, obviously the cabinet has expanded a lot, has institutionalized. The National Security Council has taken over many of the responsibilities that we initially view as being sort of the purview of the cabinet. Um, But he left a legacy in his later years that he sort of veered away from the cabinet and went back to individual consultations or written advice And so he left this legacy that every president gets to decide for themselves how they're going to interact with the cabinet, how they're going to select their closest advisors, how they're going to obtain advice from those individuals, how often they're going to meet, under what context, whether or not they're going to take their advice. And all of these relationships take place with very little public or congressional oversight. And so sometimes, like in the case of Obama, We have a president who really relies on the advice of his vice president. That's fairly rare. Usually they don't get along very well. Um, Sometimes a president is really close to one of the cabinet members. So Kennedy was really close to his brother, who was the attorney general. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, like in the case of the current administration, um, there are family members in position of power, and those are the closest advisors to the president. And because there isn't very much oversight, the American public really doesn't know often where a lot of that advice is coming from. Well, I know we're not giving a whole lot of public book talks right now, but uh, your book is launching next week. And do you have anything planned that people can see you virtually? Absolutely. So I will be doing a virtual town hall with the National Constitution Center this Thursday, uh, April 2nd. Um, My official book launch event will be on April 7th, and you can view that at the White House Historical Association Facebook page. 
Um, you can also, if you sign up beforehand, you can get a 10% off coupon for the book, um, which is available in our shop. Um, I will also be doing a virtual event with the Kinder Institute on, I believe, April 17th. And then I will be hosting a history summit, which is going to be a virtual book festival on April 25th. So if you look at historysummit.com, you can see all of the historians who have signed up to share their work and learn more about that. And um, if people, I know usually one of the best parts about um, an in-person book talk is that you can get books signed and I can meet everyone. And so unfortunately, that's not going to be and an opportunity or a possibility for a while. So if you do buy the book, first of all, thank you so much. Um, but you can send me, if you'd like to have a book plate, I had them designed with a foxhound on them for two reasons. Um, one, because Washington was the creator of the American foxhound breed. And two, because I have an American foxhound named Quincy. And so I have a book plate designed, and I would be happy to write you a note and sign it and send it to you. All you have to do is send me a picture of your book and your name and your address. You can DM me that on Twitter or send me a message on Facebook or on LinkedIn, and I will happily get that in the mail for you. Well, that sounds great. And it's nice to know that you know, despite what's going on right now, we're finding creative ways to still reach our audiences and, and you know connect with them even if it's not in person. Absolutely. What is it like... Um, necessity is the, I I always butcher these phrases. Necessity is the mother of invention. That's the one. Yes. It has definitely forced me to be more creative. We are in a great deal of necessity right now. (laughs) Absolutely. All right, Lindsay, thank you very much. Uh, Thanks for spending your morning with us. And uh, we look forward to seeing you on the book circuit, either virtually or in person and best of luck. And we'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Oh, I should have mentioned, I, of course, I'm supposed to be here at Mount Vernon in, um, in June, but Uh, Maybe that will be in person. Maybe it will be online, but definitely stay tuned for that. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider making a donation to Mount Vernon. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.